Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, New York State Health Commissioner Dr. Howard Zucker talks about several public health campaigns his department is involved with on the 100th anniversary of the 1918 flu pandemic. We continue to worry about when's the next big flu possibly going to happen again. And as the experts say, it's not a matter of um, if, it's just a matter of when. An infectious disease specialist discusses why the incidence is rising for some sexually transmitted diseases. For gonorrhea at points in the last uh, several years, we've had the highest rates of gonorrhea in the entire state, inclusive of New York City. And an international researcher explains how climate data can help predict disease outbreaks air temperature affects the mosquitoes. When the temperatures increase up to a certain temperature range, we have our highest risk of transmission. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's Health Link on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about the concerning increases in the number of some sexually transmitted diseases. Then we'll check in with an international researcher who was involved in a study using climate data to predict disease outbreaks in the Caribbean. But first, New York State's health commissioner chats about a variety of public health concerns. New York State Health Commissioner Dr. Howard Zucker came to give a lecture at Upstate Medical University and was kind enough to make time for HealthLink on Air. So he's here in the studio. Uh, Dr. Zucker earned his medical degree from George Washington School of Medicine at age 22, and he's got board certification in six medical specialties and also a law degree from Fordham University. So I want to thank you for being here. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And here we are talking in Syracuse in September 2018, and I've heard you're somewhat of a historian, so I wanted to ask about the Spanish flu, which started affecting Syracuse in a huge way in September 1918. Sure. So it's interesting. It's 100 years since the uh, 1918 flu pandemic, which was something which we always reference in in the world of public health. Uh, And we continue to worry about when's the next big flu of, of, of that uh, scale uh, possibly going to happen again. And as the experts say, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when there's going to be a, a, a significant flu. Although last year, uh, far from being something as serious as, as 1918, but last year was a, a tough flu season, as we all remember. And we had in New York State about 115,000 um, confirmed laboratory confirmed cases, and we had about 21,000 uh, individuals hospitalized. We also had uh, a handful of pediatric deaths. We had five pediatric deaths last year, and, and the year before we had actually uh, eight, and, and over the course of the past five years, we've had about 25 uh, pediatric deaths uh, combined. So a big impact. So it is. It is a big impact, and, and it's, it's concerning. I will personally tell you that you know I have a, a little baby, and, and uh, my baby got the flu uh, under the age of where he could get vaccinated, so he was in that period of time because at that point he was he was only uh, 10 weeks old and so it was you know sitting there looking at a little child with the flu and knowing that uh, uh, the dangers of the flu was pretty um it, it hit home well um the state fairgrounds here in Syracuse was being used as an army camp at that time and the first cases were found in the soldiers that were there and the symptoms that they reported headache severe stomach problems high fevers general weakness aches that's the same for today, right? It's same the same symptoms? thing. Yes, it's the same thing. 100 years later, the same symptoms. And, and, and the thing is, today, we also have the situation where people travel a lot more than in 1918. Uh, uh, diseases on one, in one part of the world can end up on our shores very quickly. Uh, people cross borders a, a lot more frequently than, than they did back then. Uh, so there are, there are concerns that we have today that, that would make this a little more alarming, although I granted we do have antivirals and, and we have great medical care and ICU care uh, and ventilators, but still, it's a concern. So um, in 1918, it was the young, the healthy, the vigorous that, that were most at risk. Right. 
And that doesn't, I mean, usually when you hear, talk about flu, I think of the, the very old, the very young that are susceptible. Right. right. So I think different flu viruses affect different groups a little bit uh, differently. I think one of the, you raise an interesting point there, because in 1918, we didn't have uh, certain populations of patients that we have today. We have a whole community of transplant patients where there's an increased risk of uh, uh, um, uh, challenges to their immune system, and, uh, and we have uh, patients with HIV-AIDS, uh, we have cancer patients which are surviving, but they're still their immune system may be challenged, it could be on chemotherapy, uh, and so I think that when we look at this issue, uh, we need to recognize that the population is different, and also uh, we have a lot of people who are living into their 90s and older, so you are correct that the old and the young, but the old today is a lot older than, than, than uh, it was. 1918. Well, that makes sense. The um, I looked through a book, and the U.S. Public Health Service at that time was recommending bed rest, good food, salts of quinine, and aspirin. Mm -hmm. So, are all four of those things still recommended? Well, I think that uh, good food and, and 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 some rest is always good for any kind of infection. And uh, you know, I, I would stay. I think we just go with the antivirals and the, which we have and available if somebody gets sick with the. The flu and, and to call your doctor. I think the, the key point here is prevention. And so uh, as we go into the flu season, I think it's important that everyone remembers it is to wash your hands and, and to use anti uh, um, uh, you know, some uh, alcohol-based um, uh, preparations if you can't you know, find a place to wash your hands, keep that around. And then the other thing also is to uh, something which we don't think about as much as that you know, if you sneeze, sneeze into tissue, sneeze into your sleeve, because a lot of times people just sneeze into their hands and then they put their hands on a surface or, or shake hands with somebody and the, and the next thing, you know, virus is spread. So I think that that's something important. And, and to call your health professional. We also have the advantage of the flu shot, which is something which we really should talk about a little bit because uh, last year the, the governor, Governor Cuomo, um, issued an executive order to allow the flu shot to be given to uh, children between the ages of 2 and 18 by pharmacists. Uh, and that was very helpful. So between the time he issued that and the end, and March, which is when the flu season sort of tapered down, we had about 9,000 uh, children in the state that were immunized in that way, which was, which was helpful. Because if you increase access and have more opportunities for somebody to get the flu shot, whether it's at the pharmacy, a doctor's office, a clinic, uh, then the potential of decreasing the spread uh, in the community is great. So the flu vaccine, um, if, you got, if you got the shot last year, you need to get it again this year, right? You get it again this year, absolutely, absolutely. Um, okay, so there's a, a segment of the population that doesn't believe the flu vaccine works or that it's, um, they're going to get sick if they get the flu. Well, I, I think the science doesn't support that, and I think that, that, that you really need to get vaccinated. And, and, and if you have somebody who's elderly, who's living in your house, you really should uh, you know, take it uh, upon yourself as you know, a relative to sort of say it's uh, important that you get the flu shot. Uh, and you know, we know how to nag our, our relatives for so, on so many things. We should be nagging them on the, these kind of issues as well. The real important ones. Okay. <laughs> uh, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with New York State Health Commissioner, Dr. Howard Zucker. So I wanted to ask you about some of the initiatives that you've got going on through the Department of Health. Um, and one is a plan to end the AIDS epidemic. Sure. So where do things stand with that? We're moving forward. Um, uh, in a very uh, aggressive fashion with this. The, the goal is to have less than 700, uh, the goal is actually zero, but right now the goal is to have less than 750 new cases uh, a year because at that point, the curve, we bend the curve and, and we'll be able to uh, end the epidemic uh, in, in New York State um, by 2020. And, and we are, when we looked at our numbers, we, we are on target uh, to achieve that goal which is excellent. This, the issue of HIV AIDS is, is something which I am uh, really fascinated by because when I um, started my medical career, I actually, uh, it was in the, the time when AIDS was sort of coming to the mm -hmm. forefront, and we are now on the, the other end of this, and I think that is a, a really a tribute to the unbelievable success in public health because it's not as if we have a vaccine. We're just talking about vaccines. It's not if we have a vaccine. So in order to achieve this, it has really been public health in action, whether it's about pre-exposure prophylaxis or uh, uh, post-exposure prophylaxis, uh, the PrEP programs we have, uh, working with communities, uh, the community health um, uh, departments. Uh, this county has an incredibly uh, 
great um, health department. And so uh, a great example of, of working in the area uh, and moving forward and, and getting information out there and talking to doctors and to take away any of the stigma associated with this issue because way back when, uh, people didn't want to talk about this. Uh, and so I think that uh, all of those issues working together uh, all those topics working together have been able to have us uh, turn the tide on this, and I'm really pleased that, that we're doing that. So it, it would uh, – the, the goal is to end the epidemic. There, right. there might still be some cases of HIV. Right, right. Or- so so the, the reason we say 750 is because when you look at the, the epidemiology, it, it, that's when the curve will, will turn, and it'll start to go down, and there'll be less cases. Um, but uh, obviously the goal is to end up with, uh, with uh, eliminating all – all new cases of, of um, HIV AIDS, and, and we'll keep uh, we'll work on all fronts. And this is where again the community we work with the community, and and if people speak with relatives and, and others about this, it's very helpful, particularly uh, about uh, treatment. Uh, we're also targeting anyone. Well, I should say targeting, but we we are identifying anyone who is uh, not immunosuppressed. Uh, uh, sorry, who is not um, virally suppressed. Sorry. Let me correct myself. It was not virally suppressed by um, uh, treatment, and so we're trying to make sure that they get treatment. Okay. Well, I also want to ask you about the opioid crisis. Um, here sure. in here in Onondaga County, at least, the number of deaths from opioid overdose was 142 in 2016, and it wasn't quite as high in 2017, but when you talk to the experts, they'll tell you that that doesn't mean there are fewer people using. Um, it's still a huge right. problem. This is This is one of those challenges which is very... Um, very tough for for all of us in, in the community, not just in the medical community, but in general to be able to um, solve this problem. The, the, the opioid crisis has uh, come upon us, not just in New York State, but across the country. Uh, we realize that in order to solve this, we have to uh, think creatively, think outside the box, um, work with, again with the community, and a look at this on more than just a health issue, but there are a lot of uh, social determinants of health that we have to tackle. Uh, we have to look at this from the issues of, of everything from um, environment, housing, uh, public health, obviously, um, communities, uh, schools, uh, education. And we are working with the other departments, and we have had many meetings within uh, <clears throat> in, in Albany with, with our colleagues uh, to try to figure out what are some of the s- solutions we can come up with. And we've also, and I've been out there, in the community in, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, sitting down with those who are providers, uh, sitting w- down with those who uh, run clinics or work, working with those who have been uh, addicted uh, and what their recommendations are because the only way to solve this is to sort of understand what some of the challenges are and hear it from the, the front line and from those who, who potentially have been uh, a victim of, of a potential overdose. And, and we also have uh, uh, treatments. We're working with the EM- EMT community, uh, and we're getting Narcan, uh, Naloxone out there, and we're, we're, there's just this is a uh, a um, multifaceted approach to something. Well, it seems like it. Now, um, the Food and Drug Administration recently came out against e electronic or e cigarettes, particularly with the way they're marketed to young right. people. Mm-hmm. So, the Department of Health, what is what is the position on e cigarettes and vaping? Right. So, so we we are concerned about this issue with with children. The the marketing of e cigarettes with these flavors and all the advertisements is something which uh, we need to uh, basically prevent or stop, and I, I, I saw what the FDA did. Uh, we have numbers where we were looking at these, uh, the percentages, and it went from 5% to 10% in some of the high school students, and, and New York State has been the leader in the nation on decreasing cigarette smoking, and uh, we pride ourselves in, in being at the front of that issue, and, and, and we don't want anything to turn this back, and, and i angry with the, uh, with the companies for sort of trying to target kids and recognizing that there are ways to advertise to children to try to get them to um, use products that, in the end, are something we don't want them to do. And and so we're going to work with our uh, community groups, and, and we're going to work with um, uh, others to try to uh, stop the, the use of e-cigarettes. Well, and it's not just the flavors, but uh, we've heard from other experts on this show about the devices themselves are made, and they look like a USB port. Right. So you can sort of, you know, here, sneak them into the classroom. Right, so this is all is, is marketing, and, and, and so we have to figure out how to, how to tackle uh, that issue, and, and we've had meetings about this, but but I'm I'm glad that 
others also feel that this is an important thing uh, to, to take on and to make sure that we uh, keep the health of our youth as, uh, <clears throat> as good as possible. Well, one, one last campaign I want to ask you about um, the Department of Health has for C. auris, Candida. Sure. Right, um, uh, Candida auris. So this is interesting. This is an infection. It's a fungal infection. And um, there are many different types of fungal infections. And, and uh, we know about like sort of different uh, Candida infections. For example, sometimes kids get thrush in their mouth, and that's one type. Oh. But, but there's, uh, there's also something called Candida auris, which is a... Um, class of a fungal infection, which we've noticed in, in New York has been in, in some nursing homes and in some uh, hospitals, and we've started to target this. Uh, even though the numbers aren't that great, they have gone up, and we've been working with the CDC to um, figure out what we need to do. We, we recognized this uh, about a year and a half ago. We brought in the environmental uh, health experts from the hospitals around uh, Around the state, and as a matter of fact, people because of what we were doing, there were there were other states that came to to our meeting, and we spoke with them about what we can do to clean the surfaces. This particular type of uh, infection actually is a little more hardy than some of the other types of uh, infections, and they they stay on the surface, uh, and they need to they, they hang around the surface a little bit more. Surfaces uh, like countertops, uh, countertops or right, skin, right? Well, uh, both, but the countertops. Oh. So in the hospital, we we noticed that the closer to the patient the more those surfaces are, are exposed. So, and then when you're in a hospital, someone may take the blood pressure cuff machine and then move it to the next room or something else. And, and so this is where we need to figure out how do we, how do we tackle this. Um, and so we're working with our experts about this, and we're working with the CDC. We published an article about this just recently. Uh, and we're, we're going to take this on and continue to take it on to uh, try to figure out what we need to do uh, to prevent this. Now, it's hard to decide where is it beginning, where is it coming from, is it, is it from, uh, uh, let's say, a nursing home, back to the hospital, or vice versa, and, and like I'm saying, it's not like the, it's all over, but once you see something creep up, even if the numbers are, you know, only in, in a dozens versus, you know, thousands and thousands of numbers, uh, you still, you use that as sort of the marker to say, okay, we need to figure out what's going on and, and take it on. And again, I just want to clarify, I don't want people to think that thrush is like that. I'm just using that as, as a, an example, as an example sure. that there's a family of, of uh, uh, infections. And so sometimes some of them you treat and it's fine. And then there's other types in that family that you get a little more worried about. So I don't want anyone to get confused right. on that. Well, good to know. This has all been very good information. I appreciate you being here. Thanks so much. My guest has been Dr. Howard Zucker, the Health Commissioner of New York State. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, why is the incidence of some sexually transmitted diseases rising? On Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The rate of sexually transmitted diseases in the United States is at a record high again for the fourth year in a row, and officials are becoming more concerned about what is turning out to be a steep and sustained increase. Here to talk about this is Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She's an assistant professor of medicine with expertise in infectious diseases, and she works in immune health services. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I just briefly wanted to mention that I also work at the Onondaga County STD Center as well. Okay, right. And we definitely want to talk about, because that's where a lot of the testing is offered, right? The Correct. free or low-cost or no-cost testing. Correct. So the, the numbers that came out that we're talking about come from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, they're for the whole United States, but am I correct in assuming that Central New York has seen the same sort of increases? You are correct. And in fact, Central New York in particular has had a record of having higher rates than other parts of the state. In fact, for gonorrhea at points in the last uh, several years, we've had the highest rates of gonorrhea in the entire state, inclusive of New York City. So these are important figures that are affecting us in upstate New York as well as in the rest of the country. 
So gonorrhea, um, what are the other diseases that we're talking about? So the ones that the CDC was especially concerned about and looking at were chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. Um, HPV is the human papillomavirus, and that actually is also an incredibly common sexually transmitted disease, although um, it has some unique features to it, and it can partially be prevented by vaccine. Um, and then another one that is um, being noted to increase in places where they're testing is trichomoniasis, which is an infection that mostly affects women. Okay. All right. Well, since the gonorrhea rates are so high, let's start with that. Um, it, gonorrhea is a problem for men and women? Correct. So um, gonorrhea is something that in women oftentimes does not show any symptoms, and that's something that you can see across the board with a number of sexually transmitted infections in women is that they don't show symptoms. So getting tested regularly is especially important for women. Men who have gonorrhea usually do have symptoms. In fact, they almost always do. So men can have discharge as well as burning on urination, discomfort in their genital area, sometimes even fevers. And uh, men should oftentimes will come right in as soon as they develop symptoms that are classic for gonorrhea. The rate of gonorrhea actually has increased more in men than women, and um, investigators aren't entirely sure why that is, but it, it was actually a 67% increase just over the last year um, in gonorrhea nationally, and we had about a 5% increase here in central New York. Wow. Now, are there treatments once, you, once you're diagnosed with gonorrhea? What do you, what do, you do about it? Yeah, so gonorrhea, it actually requires an injection, which is uh, obviously something people are not so enthused to hear about. But the reason for that is that we've seen increasing rates of drug resistance against the, um, the gonorrhea bacteria or, or from the gonorrhea bacteria against antibiotics that we typically use to treat it. So it's now recommended that gonorrhea be treated with two different antibiotics together, and one of them is an injection. And the good news is that when you have that, that's a single dose treatment. So you get one injection um, and pill, and then you're, you're done at that point. Um, and you would anticipate to start feeling better if you're not feeling well within the next couple of days and that the infection should be cleared within the course of about a week. So um, it's, it's something that we, at this point, really can treat pretty easily. Um, but the concern is, like I said, that a lot of studies from around the world are showing that this is a bacteria that's developing increased rates of resistance to common antibiotics. Can you get it a second time? Yes. Um, all of these are, are infections that you can become infected with once again. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like our body does a, a good job of producing immunity to these infections. So once you've had them, it doesn't mean that you're protected. And then what about long term? Say you have gonorrhea in your 20s. What happens? Does anything happen to you in your 40s that's related to it? Yeah, great question. So um, gonorrhea is more, it causes more inflammation than some of the other sexually transmitted infections. Most of the time when you get treated for it, you're, you're, you're clear, you're healthy, and you have no long-term problems. What we do worry about is that in women, gonorrhea increases the risk of pelvic inflammatory disease, and that can later cause problems with infertility, as well as ectopic pregnancy, which is where a pregnancy would implant outside of the uterus and the fallopian tubes, and that can be a dangerous clinical situation. So that's one of the reasons why we take um, these infections very seriously is try to try to avoid those problems. Though, again, most people, once they're treated, they have no long-term effects. What about syphilis? So syphilis is a little bit unique to the other sexually transmitted infections in that it's not just a local infection. Syphilis actually goes throughout the entire body when somebody becomes infected. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about syphilis, um, unfortunately, is that it is transmitted very easily through oral sex. So some of the other infections, you, you also can get through oral sex, but maybe not quite as efficiently. So um, syphilis, we've seen a substantial increase, again, on a regular basis over the last several years. And um, we worry about it, again, because of it being, like I said, a full-body infection that can result in some more serious consequences. Again, not for everyone, but um, a certain proportion of people can develop things like eye problems, meningitis, um, very bad skin rashes, and all of those, fortunately, for the most part, really respond very well to a shot of penicillin. 
Um, but it, it's something where the consequences, you know, if you have to go into the hospital because you have meningitis, then that's obviously something much more significant. Um, the other thing that we're really worried about related to syphilis is congenital syphilis. And what we've seen throughout the years is that every time that rates of syphilis go up in the general population, they also go up among babies. So in, in New York State, we've had uh, certainly some concern about that over the last couple of years. And in upstate New York, we typically were having about two cases of congenital syphilis per year. And in 2017, there were eight. Um, and congenital syphilis is something where a baby could either be stillborn or have long-lasting effects um, to their nervous system, including developmental problems, blindness, or deafness. And so, um, so that, that let me yeah. interrupt you. That's yeah. a that's a baby that's born to a mother who's infected with syphilis. Correct. Oh, okay. Correct. So there was a new recommendation that went out um, in New York State that women need to be tested twice during pregnancy, and that's considered to be a New York a New York State mandate at this point. So they should be tested as soon as they go into care during the first trimester, and then again during the third trimester prior to delivery. All right. And then chlamydia. Uh, let's ask about that. That's more uh, affects more women than men, or is that most of the diagnoses of chlamydia are in young women, you're right. And all young women less than uh, 25 years of age, so 15 through 24, are recommended to be screened every single year, regardless of whatever history they provide related to uh, sexual activity, because it is still difficult for some people to report sexual activity to their providers. And chlamydia is by far and away the most common of the STDs that we've discussed up until now. So in New York State alone, there are more than 100,000 cases of chlamydia per year. So this one is really, really common. And chlamydia is challenging because it so often does not have any symptoms. So both women and men can have chlamydia infections without symptoms. And in women, the same problems that we talked about related to gonorrhea are ones that can occur with chlamydia. So what we are concerned about is development of pelvic inflammatory disease, which could lead to infertility or ectopic pregnancy. So short of abstinence, what advice do you have for people, men and women, um, how to protect themselves? So I really, really strongly encourage use of condoms. And a, a lot of folks um, have commented to me in arenas where we talk about public health issues and STDs that condom culture is dead. Um, and there is certainly a concern about that, that uh, people are having less protected sex. Uh, actually, it looks like in terms of numbers of partners and ages when people are starting to have sex, those have, if anything, trended in directions that would be more protective. So um, it looks like teenagers are waiting a little bit longer to have sex and also um, the numbers of partners that people are having overall, it looks like is actually similar or going down. Um, but what does seem to be happening is that protected sex seems to be less and less. Um, and a condom would protect you from against all, all of, of these. these. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how would a person know whether their partner's infected with one of these diseases? Great question. And many times you really don't know. So there certainly if, if you notice that somebody has a sore, um, then that would be something of concern. But really, most of the time, this is not something you'd be able to see on your partner. And it's a matter of, of thinking about getting regularly tested and getting tested, especially if possible, before you have sex. Now, yes, you wanted you, you mentioned testing. Um, where is that done? Uh, can people just at their doctor's office or are there Absolutely. other places? Okay. Yeah, so, uh, so we really encourage people to talk with their primary care providers about um, sexual activity, about STD testing, and that's unfortunately something that oftentimes is not happening and that we think is contributing to increased rates of STDs is that people don't feel comfortable getting tested in regular care environments, um, although certainly we hope that providers and patients can talk about this as because it's an important part of health. Right, especially um, if the provider brings it up. We no. would love that. I would absolutely love that. And I really, really encourage providers to do that. Here in Onondaga County, we also have the STD Center. Um, and there's testing at STD Center on a walk-in basis every day except Wednesdays, every weekday. I apologize, except Wednesdays. Um, and you can call their main line, which is available on the web. You can look up their number and call them for the specific hours that testing is done. That's and through the Onondaga County Health Department? Correct. Okay. Yep. And the, the clinic is in the Civic Center. Okay. So yeah. anyone can go there um, any age? 
Right. Yeah, any age. I mean, 13 and up typically would be patients who we would see um, because of the, our, our demographics, but anyone can go there. Yeah. Now, is the point of testing because so many of these diseases don't really have symptoms, so you, you wouldn't know you have it? If you didn't Absolutely. get tested, yes. and then if you do test positive, what happens? So, um, for example, at STD Center, we treat you then and there. If if you test positive, um, there are some tests that we need to wait for the results, and depending on what the results are, we could either call a prescription into your pharmacy or have you come back in for free treatment at the center. Um, and another really important point that I want to bring up is partner therapy. So when, whenever someone has a sexually transmitted infection, it came from somewhere, right? And what we're finding is that uh, there's kind of a broken link here with uh, a lot of people not getting their partners tested or treated. And that's one of the things that I think uh, health departments are particularly good at and that we really need good public health funding for. So that if you test positive, then some, somehow your partners need to be notified. Correct. Or... Correct. So ideally, we, you know, it's great if you're able to inform your partners. If you go to the health department, then the health department can also anonymously inform partners. So if you're able to provide information to the health department, they can call somebody and say, hey, you know what, we found out that you've been exposed to X, Y, or Z, and we can offer you a free treatment if you come in. Um, in addition, actually, people can get prescriptions without names on them to give to partners uh, for chlamydia specifically. So chlamydia, as we said, is the most common STD in New York State and throughout the country. And um, chlamydia, actually, um, because it can be treated with a single dose of a pill, you can give that prescription to somebody to say, go ahead and give this to your partner so that they can take it as well. And that can really help people who are busy, afraid, uh, don't have access, et cetera, to make sure that they get treated and the chain of infection stops. Well, that's great to know. This is very good information. I appreciate you sharing this with our listeners. My guest has been infectious disease and immune health specialist, Dr. Elizabeth Asiago-Reddy. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Researchers from Upstate led a study with the Caribbean Institute for Meteorology and Hydrology and the Caribbean Public Health Agency to determine whether climate information could be used to predict outbreaks of mosquito-borne diseases such as dengue fever and the Zika virus. Their work has subsequently been published in a special PLOS Medicine journal devoted to climate change and health. And with me in the studio to talk about the research is one of the authors, Dr. Anna Stewart-Ibarra. She's the director of the research program for Latin America and the Caribbean in Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about the purpose of this study, um, why it was done. Sure. So... USAID had allocated funding to the Caribbean Institute for Meteorology and Hydrology to begin to develop new tools that the public health sector uh, in the Caribbean could use to combat epidemics of mosquito-borne diseases like dengue fever, Zika, chikungunya. Uh, these diseases um, have been increasing in recent years, as I'm sure many people are aware, and it's really become a top public health priority. And so one of the tools that has been proposed to address these diseases are early warning systems or models or you know that can predict and forecast disease epidemics. And so the goal of this project was to do an initial study um, to see the potential to develop an early warning system for dengue fever and Zika and mosquito-borne diseases in the Caribbean. And this was really uh, I would say, a very large partnership w between, as you mentioned, the Caribbean Public Health Agency, CARFA, the Pan American Health Agency, 
the Caribbean Institute for Meteorology and Hydrology, and investigators from different universities, such as the London School of Medicine and Hygiene, and the University of Florida, and, and collaborators from Ecuador as well. And so this particular project is part of a, a bigger body of research, right, that's all related? Yeah, so this was part of a project called Building Regional Climate Capacities in the Caribbean. And as part of that project, there was a specific focus on how we could develop capabilities to work better with the health sector. Within the health sector, mosquito-borne disease was one of the top concerns. There were also other people working on heat, uh, the effects of heat stress on human health, for example. And so within this project, uh, we had one. We have several different publications that came out, and this, one of these is this paper that you mentioned that was published in PLOS Medicine. Okay. Well, let me ask you kind of a simple question. How does knowing that a disease outbreak is likely help the planners? Like, what, what do mm-hmm. they do with that information? That's a great question. So some of it depends on the, t- on the scale, the time scale. So how are we talking about a two-week forecast, or is it a prediction for two weeks from now, for three months from now, for a year from now? So, and decision makers or public health sector can take different actions depending at which, which scale, which time scale we're talking about. So typically we think about seasonal forecasts. So in the next three months, are we more or less likely to see a disease outbreak? So with a seasonal climate forecast, we can create these seasonal disease forecasts. Um, And then the public health sector could, for example, decide if they wanted to do more mosquito control in a certain area, a high-risk area, or maybe more education and outreach. They might increase, you know, the number of uh, advertisements on the news so that people are aware of, of you know, mosquitoes and they should be control, controlling, you know, containers with water, or they might start buying uh, more lab supplies and tr- so that the labs are ready to receive people with suspected cases of disease and they have the diagnostics on hand or train doctors, for example, so the doctors have it on their radar, that oh, there may good. be more cases coming in. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, um, can you tell me what the researchers um, did for this study and, sure. and how it was done and what they found? Yeah. So... In this study, we, we know that cl- local climate, like rainfall and temperature, can affect mosquito-borne diseases. And that makes sense because the mosquitoes uh, need to have water to reproduce. So you have to have standing bodies of water. Um, but also air temperature affects the mosquitoes. So when, <clears throat> when the temperatures increase up to a certain temperature range, generally between, um, let's say, 26 to 29 degrees Celsius, uh, we have sort of our highest risk of transmission. If it gets too hot, the mosquitoes can't fly anymore. They kind of get cooked because it's too hot. And if it's too cold, they're lethargic. They can't move because mosquitoes can't control their own body temperature. They depend mm. on the ambient body temperatures. So in this, in this study, what we did was we took information from the Caribbean island of Barbados, which is a small country in the Caribbean where dengue fever has been present and Zika has been present, have been present. And we used data from 1999 through 2016 uh, numbers of dengue cases each month, and also rainfall and temperature. And what was interesting is we actually used a drought uh, indicator called the Standardized Precipitation Index. This is a, a value, uh, I guess, an indicator of drought conditions that is used commonly in agriculture to predict uh, droughts for agriculture. But we used it in this model to see if it would be a better predictor for, for dengue outbreaks. And we were able to show that using rainfall and temperature data, we were able to successfully predict months when there would be outbreaks of dengue versus months when there would be no outbreaks. And we saw that dengue outbreaks increased as the temperature increased up to about 25 degrees Celsius. And what was really interesting is that we found um, that there were more likelihood, the likelihood that we'd have disease outbreaks during periods of drought, which is one of the few studies, I think, that's actually shown that dengue or mosquito-borne diseases can increase during drought, but also during periods of excess rainfall, which sort of makes sense. That's, that's intuitive. But with respect to drought, uh, Barbados, like many countries around the world, um, has limited water resources, limited freshwater resources. And so when you have periods of drought, community members need to store water in and around the home. And actually, the government passed building regulations so that large buildings have to have containers with rainwater storage. Um, so that sounds like a great idea, and that's part of a lot of like, climate change adaptation strategies to reduce the impact of climate change so the communities are better able to respond. But on the other hand... Mosquitoes like standing water, exactly. right? Exactly. So now we're increasing the risk of mosquito-borne diseases. So that's why you would see a disease outbreak during a drought. Exactly. Coming from. Wow, mm-hmm. that is interesting. Mm-hmm. 
So um, can the same statistical model that you worked with, could, could you use that in another country? Could you use that, say, in central New York mm-hmm. where, I don't know, we don't have dengue, um, but we have Tripoli. West Nile. And we Tripoli. have Tripoli. Yeah. So could it be used for something like that? or The same model framework, the same overall structure, and the way that the model was put together could definitely be used to look at different mosquito-borne disease in different parts of the world. And that was part of the goal of this study, was to present this as an as a approach that could be used more generally in other settings. Okay. And, and I would say also, because this was developed in close partnership with the climate sector and the public health sector, our goal was to come up with something that would be useful and um, potentially translated into uh, an operational tool so that it wouldn't be just a, sort of an academic exercise, but really a tool that could be brought um, to help decision makers. And you wouldn't have to recreate it every time. You'd already have sort of established pattern for how to do this. Or yeah, whatever. we sort of have a general idea about how to pull the pieces of the model together. Do you, Would it work for other insect-borne diseases like Lyme or uh, other things that, I mean, does the climate affect ticks? Mm. So it's, I, That's a really good question. Uh, I think climate affects any kind of arthropod or insect-borne yeah. illness because arthropods, insects, um, ticks are uh, affected by their ambient temperatures. And so where they can move in terms of their north and south distribution, where you find them in terms of elevation, so it's higher, lower-lying areas, that's very much related to climate. Um, so this kind of approach could be relevant definitely for other kinds of uh, vector-borne diseases. Neat. Now, I know your study kind of look, looked at data from the past. Mm-hmm. Um, did you do any projections for the future? Like where, mm-hmm. um, you know, are you predicting a higher risk of dengue in the coming year? Or We have not yet done predictions beyond the, the period that we tested in the model, so up to 2016. That's definitely a next step that, that we plan to work on with our partners in the public health sector. Um, we did a sort of test in the model, so where we would predict a specific month by taking that month out of the data set and then predict that month. Um, so as though we didn't have any of the data for that specific month. And so that was sort of a way to test without actually having to go forward in time. But that would be the next step for sure. Interesting. All right, so what do these findings mean? Uh, these findings mean that there definitely is potential to develop dengue early warning systems or mosquito-borne disease early warning systems in, in the Caribbean. And that these kinds of early warning systems or disease forecasts could be used by the public health sector to plan and implement different interventions to reduce the risk of disease, as we talked about before, like um, deploying you know, field workers to do vector control in communities or working with, with schools and communities to raise awareness and education. Um, and, and the goal is, as I mentioned before, that this become an operational tool sort of in the short term. So that's our next step. How do we actually take this and, and turn it into... Um, something that the public health sector can use to inform their decision-making. Now, remind me, the same mosquito that carries um, the dengue is is also the same mosquito mm-hmm. with Zika and chikungunya. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so the, the mosquito, the main mosquito vector is called the Aedes aegypti mosquito. There's a, a secondary mosquito vector called the Aedes albopictus mosquito or the Asian tiger mosquito, but the main vector is still the Aedes aegypti mosquito. And um, both Aedes aegypti and Aedes albopictus transmit a range of different viruses. They're, they're very good at spreading disease. So dengue fever, chikungunya virus, Zika virus, uh, yellow fever virus, and others are transmitted by the same mosquito species. Um, can they transmit more than one at a time? Can yes, they, we they think can. so. Yeah, there have been studies that have shown mosquitoes to be infected with multiple viruses. So... Um, it's hard to say exactly. If you have a mosquito that has multiple viruses, does that mean that that same mosquito can pass multiple viruses? Hard to tell in the real world. But we have they, people have found mosquitoes that have dengue and Zika inside of them. And we certainly do find people with co-infections. Both. Yeah. Wow. Just in Ecuador, during the chikungunya outbreak, we found that about 12% of people who are positive for chikungunya also had dengue fever. Wow. So. Interesting. 
Well, the, your research doesn't get into the differentiation between which disease. It's just looking at mosquito-borne diseases in general, right? Oh, in this study, we were focusing on dengue fever, okay. mostly because we have um, about 16 years, 17 years of data to be able to develop the model. With chikungunya and Zika, we only have about two years of information, three years of data maybe, and so it's difficult to develop a, a forecast model to predict epidemics with such a short time frame. But the idea is that the same model framework, as you said, could be adapted for other diseases. As soon as we gather more information about these diseases, you know, in the coming years, we'll be able to really refine our ability to make predictions about other disease outbreaks. But if the same mosquitoes carry dengue and Zika, if, mm -hmm. if there's an increased risk for dengue that season or after mm -hmm. the monsoon or after the rainfall or whatever, sure, there could also be an increased risk for Zika, right? In theory, in theory, except that uh, more than climate affects these diseases. So that's, I guess, an important thing to think about. Um, climate is an important risk factor because it affects the mosquito, but also people's immunity is important to consider. Um, so, for example, Zika swept through the, all of the Americas last year. Let's say most people were exposed to Zika. And so right now we have very high levels of immunity in the population. And so we wouldn't expect to see a major Zika epidemic next year, even if we have a lot of Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. But certainly a few years down the road, as their population immunity goes down, um, if you have a year with higher numbers of mosquitoes, you could also, again, see risk, increased risk of Zika. So would any of this research apply to situations in the Americas? Definitely. And there have been other groups working on developing uh, prediction models for uh, mosquito-borne disease risk in the U.S. In the southern U.S., I would say Florida, but also along the Texas-Mexico border region, Arizona, dengue fever has been present for a while. Also Hawaii, and of course many of the U.S. territories um, in other in, throughout the tropics, such as Puerto Rico or the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, so these are areas with really high risk of disease outbreaks. And even today, we know that when you have outbreaks in other parts of the world, that affects people every, in other parts of the world where maybe those diseases are not endemic. So, for example, during the Zika epidemic, I think there were more than 5,000 cases of Zika that were detected in the U.S. from people who had traveled all over the world to Zika transmission areas. So if we know that there's a major outbreak occurring in the Caribbean, that would certainly affect people traveling to the Caribbean, but also um, the southern U.S. and those nearby areas, because these mosquitoes are present in Florida, for example. Well, and also um, hurricane season. Does mm -hmm. that, or could that have an impact on the mosquito population? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's an area that's still somewhat unanswered, but I think a pretty hot topic, because... Um, the Caribbean region and the southern U.S. is uh, very susceptible to these extreme storm events uh, like hurricanes. And when we were working on this project, it was just, uh, we finished in July 2017, and just a few months later, the region was devastated by the 2017 hurricane, the, the many hurricanes that passed through the Caribbean that year. And we had a lot of concern um, that we would see an increase in Zika transmission in the region. And so partners... Uh, in Puerto Rico and different countries were monitoring the situation pretty closely because all of a sudden you now have many people who are susceptible to mosquito bites because maybe you've lost your home, you're sleeping outdoors, um, you don't have access to mosquito nets, you have lots of standing water and containers in and around the home. In some places the piped water systems were damaged and so people had to store water for extended periods of time. So all of these risk factors come together and definitely increase the risk of mosquito-borne diseases. Well, this has been very interesting. I want to thank you for your time this morning. My guest has been Dr. Anna Stewart-Abara. She's the director of the Research Program for Latin America and the Caribbean, and that's in Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. We are living in a time of constant migrations, displacements, forced removals. 
the stories of the people who endure these dislocations are not often told. But Oregon professor and poet Christopher T. Keveny gives voice to them in his poem, Native, Non-Native. Insofar as the non-native has his own problems, the umbrella that he carries around just in case, along with the broken compass, more boomerang really than magnet-oriented, to bring him back to the starting point. Note his surprising faith in the dismal science, homespun after a fashion, burnt bridges he never intended to cross, the coffin nail predicated on its own failed logic. He learned all that he needed to know about playing the outsider in the margin, where shore met simply more shore, and those who could afford the journey dreamt of a tide that kept creeping away, a spot where the natives had piled rock upon rock as a kind of memorial to the lapping of waves, the ideal location for non-natives to gather after lunch before slipping away in clusters to lay low until nightfall, to trace freedom in the sand with their big toes, a ritual to keep the brokers at bay. It will never be as you imagined, says the native to the non-native. Arriving has always been the easy part. Surmising the probability of the sea in a carnival town, the place where he and his family arrived with shawls, spices, and the ingenuity of duct tape, cutbacks through the steep promontory up from the beach merely prolonged the agony of acculturation. The nod of sunflowers all the way to the safe house, obliging them to make a day of it, credit accrued for the time served in the camps where he rarely bedded down, banking on small consolations in a ravaged city, the not-quite-young non-native deprived of the insularity of the native drawl. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, the autonomic neuropathy clinic and lab that's helping people with neuromuscular disorders. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.